Hello and welcome to Resident Advisors Exchange, our series of conversations with the artists, labels, and promoters shaping the electronic music landscape. I'm Jordan Rothline, and I'm the tech editor at Resident Advisor. Our guest this week is Frankie Bones, one of New York City's techno legends. You've probably heard of the infamous early 90s storm raves, clandestine, large-scale parties that took the energy Frankie had experienced at dance music events in the UK and recast it in dark, grimy hues that are unmistakably tied to pre-Giuliani New York. In terms of influence, these parties were huge, as were a lot of the freestyle inflected records that landed him in England. But there was a whole lot that happened before and after he started cutting the locks on abandoned warehouses in the outer boroughs. We spoke at length about all of that in New York recently. Big ups to Phil Maffa and Bush's Sound Studios for their help taping this one. You can find our full archive of exchanges on residentadvisor.net and follow us on SoundCloud at RA-Exchange. Frankie Bones, up next on The Exchange. came of age in 1980s Brooklyn. What was the city like back then? Well, 1980s New York was, um, it's definitely not the way it is in 2015. I mean, it's it was coming from an era, well, the best way to describe it is like the Warriors movie and Saturday Night Fever, both which, you know, played big parts in Brooklyn, even though Warriors is the Bronx, but New York City on a whole, it was like, the gang thing and the dancing thing. If you took Saturday Night Fever and mixed it with the Warriors, boom, you'd have my movie right there. <laughs> but yeah, it was a crazy time. Um, New York, you know, in the 70s went through, you know, the city had no money, the trains were falling apart, the graffiti on the trains, and you know, I mean, we had these underground movements happen in the late 70s, early 80s between breakdancing, graffiti, and DJing that no other city could have painted that picture, you know? So it was great for me. I mean, I turned, you know, like 13 when Rap is Delight first came out in October of 79. And to like be able to go through hip hop from its baby steps, like, you know, from the Bronx, I mean, early 70s when nobody knew what it was. And then to start your DJ career off. And, I, you know, I, I've always been like with disco dance music into electro, but I modeled a lot of the things I learned in the streets off of hip-hop because that was part of the streets. I mean, you know, the hip is like the knowledge and the hop is the dance. So, you know, it's like we were in the know and at very young age, 13, 14, you know, you learned about the streets and I guess there was a lot of segregation as there always has been in New York, but it was really bad in the 70s, 80s and graffiti culture allowed you to be you know, white, black, Puerto Rican, Asian, it didn't matter. If you were talented, you could get in and, you know, it was illegal. So everybody was doing something illegal and the ones with the talent were the ones that got known. So, I mean, I wasn't like talented in doing like massive burners on trains, but I mean, writing my name Bones, I did it so much that it just stuck with everybody after a while. But that was like the early 80s, definitely. I mean, you mentioned that 
graffiti was something that brought together people from an otherwise quite segregated city. I mean, did you feel like from a very early stage, you were kind of mixing in ways that would not have been possible for a lot of people in the city? Well, being from the outer boroughs, first of all, you know, with five boroughs, you know, everybody looked at Manhattan because Manhattan is where the money was. It's, you know, they call it the concrete jungle. So that's what it was. So if you were from Queens, Brooklyn, Staten Island, the Bronx, in Manhattan's eyes, you were just an outcast. They call it bridge and tunnel crowd for a reason, because we're not from Manhattan. So basically, I come from an area in Brooklyn um, that my parents moved to Flatbush, which was a very uh, blue-collar Irish-Italian neighborhood in the early 70s. And my parents liked to go clubbing. They were like futurists. They weren't like, you know, if you were in the Rocks era, your parents would be hippies. My parents were more like, they were just, they, they came from the Rock era, but they were just different minded people so I got I lived on a dead end street on top of it last house on the left no way off the block except you go in one way you come out the other so yeah I had a lot of slack with kids when I was young especially like in disco music I, I caught a couple knots everybody's like disco sucks and then you know 79 kiss came out with I was made for loving you which is a disco song and then all of a sudden it was cool you know but I was already older so I was already exploring the city at 12, 13, getting on the subway, just going to Manhattan to, you know, buy records and, you know, fool around, cause mischief, whatever, write graffiti. It was all part of that that era. And I mean, Brooklyn was very territorial. Each neighborhood, it was, you know, the Italians stayed with the Italians, the Puerto Ricans stayed with Puerto Ricans. And the only thing that lifted that whole spirit, like where it wasn't territorial, was going down in the subway tunnels, writing graffiti. It didn't matter because you were doing something illegal. So everybody that was good was cool with you. It didn't matter what you were. And that's how I really learned about life, really. I mean, you said that your parents were going out to clubs. Were they bringing a lot of that music home with them? Well, I mean, uh, the first DJs that I ever heard of, Walter Gibbons was probably the first DJ I ever heard of because, I mean, my parents would go to Lamouche and they'd go to Galaxy um, and they went to a lot of the underground clubs in the 70s. I, I remember when my dad came home with the 12 inch or 10% by Double Exposure, which was South Soul's first. 12 inch record but it actually is the first commercially released 12 inch and you know me being a kid i was 10 years old i already was collecting 45s i didn't see the purpose because i'm 10 years old i'm hearing the radio versions so i'm not hearing the extended disco cut it took me a few years to appreciate what a 12 inch was because growing up as a kid a little 45 why do i need a whole album's worth of the same song you don't realize that when you're 10 because my mixing started off with taking you know two copies of a 45 and blending them back and forth i didn't have a pitch control so what else could you do you could take the same song and blend it yeah through the 70s the roller skating thing got big i mean this is like when i was just coming out of like you know junior high school so um you know i'd go roller skating on the weekends and then the graffiti thing got me in the fever mode when I was traveling the city to do that. So it was a learning experience that I, you, you had to be born. Like I was born in 1966. I don't know many people from my era. I mean, I meet a couple people, but people that I usually associate with are born 1971, 72, 73. So I just go back a little bit further, you know, and, and those five or six years just makes made the whole difference. I mean, my timing of everything I did, I had six, maybe a six month window in either direction. It wouldn't have happened any other way. Yeah. Could you define what those extra years gave you? It's hard to define it, but my father got murdered when I was 18 and I was I wasn't out of high school yet when my father got murdered. 
And I never was at a wake, a funeral. I didn't know anybody that died up until I was 18 years old. I didn't have any relatives. I mean, you know, my grandparents might have, my, my grandfather might have passed, but I was two, so I don't remember. So the night my father got murdered, I just, to explain how, when you've never been through something like that, the closest figure in your life just gets taken out instantly. And there was no, you know, there was no warning. There was no, so yeah, I, I was, you know, it was like going through like a rabbit hole straight to hell really because he didn't like my graffiti because he was a road car inspector for the New York Transit Authority so it's not really a good place to be if you know you know your parents working well your dad's working for the transit so he has to see that and the trains were really messed up in the 80s whenever you guys get on trains here in New York now in 2015 and you're like oh it's Every train has air conditioning. Trains back then, you'd be lucky if both doors open to get off. So <laughs> filled with graffiti, dirty, filthy. I mean, all you got to do is Google 1980s subway New York City or New York City subway, and you see, like, there's a picture of Michael Jackson on the one train. might have been, like, 82. And the train looked like it was just graffiti on graffiti on graffiti, like people just writing over each other's name layers, like seven, eight layers of names. It was just horrible. <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, I, I when my father passed, it was like I was... Didn't get out of high school yet. I was just about to graduate. I did graduate. And, you know, my parents always wanted to know what I wanted to do in my life. I knew I was going to be a DJ from early on, but we didn't know what DJing was in 1982, 83. There wasn't international traveling DJs. And I pretty much know how that went down because I was amongst the first to do that. So Yeah, you said that there were three things. There was graffiti, there was dancing, and there was DJing. I mean, at what point did it become clear to you that DJing was the thing that you were that you were going to focus on. When when did you when well, did you differentiate? I, it's funny, like because especially nowadays too, because Frankie Knuckles, who definitely the Godfather house, God bless his soul, rest in peace. I mean, like you know, I've been called the Godfather, a rave. I get misconstrued in a couple of things, but Frankie Crocker on WBLS was a radio DJ in the seventies and eighties. And he, you know, entertained people in ways that other radio DJs never did in the 70s. He'd have his little soliloquies and his little, like, messages. And a lot like Detroit, I never heard the electrifying mojo, but, like, Frankie Crocker for New York Radio as a kid. You know, I remember them playing Kraftwerk Trans Europe Express, and the thing with that was... Kraftwerk was the first white band to actually get played on black radio in America. I don't think people realize that. They weren't playing play that funky music, White Boy by Wild Cherry, but when Kraftwerk did Trans Europe Express, all the black on station played Kraftwerk. So I remember being really young, and I didn't know what the big deal like that was. I knew, you know, electronic, that it was electronic music, but... But Kraftwerk did something that, I don't know, they took those machines and put such a soul in them that, you know, you couldn't deny them. So it didn't matter where they were from. They were German, they were white, whatever. It didn't matter. The music was too funky to keep it, you know, locked up. So it got really big amongst the urban crowd. And um, I learned that from an early age. So it was just an amazing time to see that. That was like in 77. So, yeah. All right, so 1977, talking about when Trans Europe Express came out, we had the blackout in New York City in 77. I was only like 10 years old, but... I remember the night of the blackout, you had the Son of Sam running around killing people. You had this blackout happen. The whole city was out, and it was a scary time. I mean, after that night with the Son of Sam, people didn't want to go to clubs anymore. The clubs started like, you know, my parents didn't go out after that. They went out hardcore clubbing discotheques from 74 to 77, around that time. So after that, I mean, after 77, the roller skating thing got popular in 78, 79, but disco became commercial, so it wasn't, like, cool to go out to clubs anymore. So it started to change, and I, I, that's when I became a DJ. So, I mean, 
in a way, I'm glad that it kind of died by 1980 and hip-hop came along because it wouldn't be the same today if I didn't go through it that way. This sort of dystopian city that you're describing, how do you think that influenced the way you were playing music or the sort of music you were interested in? Well, I, yeah, it's great, too, because I mentioned Kraftwerk, and it's like, all right, so if you have Trans Europe Express on a... I was only able to buy the little 45s when I was a kid. My grandmother gave me five bucks. I'd get five singles for $5, so... I didn't know about metal on metal on Trans Europe Express. When you got a 12 inch or the album version, the full album, it's like when that metal on metal comes on, it's like trains running down tracks. And, you know, until Grandmaster Flash did amazing, you know, adventures on the wheels of steel. That was 81. It wasn't too far off, but that's when the connection to the trains and the DJing, you know, because I didn't have techniques 1200s when I started out. I don't think any kid did it back in those days. My first mixer just had like three sliders. There's no crossfader. Maybe it had a headphone output for the cueing. That's it. But um, I had like Techniques D1s when I started. So about, and that was, you know, as two turntables a mixer go, 1979. But yeah, I think the train thing and painting on trains, the, the metal and the whole, you know, the thing about records is they spin around. So as the record's spinning, you know, you're looking at it, and as the train's in the tunnel on the tracks, the wheels are turning. So I don't know. I just think there was a rotation in everything I was doing back then. Roller skating, the wheels are turning. You know, it's like it just felt right. Yeah, yeah. When I, it's like if I had roller skates on my feet, I was I could do anything. Like I had girlfriends from the time I was 11 years old. I didn't know anything about sex whatsoever, but I knew that last 20 minutes at the roller skating rink was couples only, and I wasn't skating unless I. I asked the girl to skate with me so that really probably in one shot opened me up for my future in ways that I would have never like the smallest stupidest thing like that you would think ain't a big deal but it really was because it was made me be able to do something you know simultaneously on the spot where you have to go up and ask a girl to skate with you and if she didn't if she said no you didn't want that humiliation and that 11 12 and it was like it was so innocent back then but it, it was the same thing years later too so still to this very day nobody wants to be you know like ah, get out of here you know they don't want to hear that <laughs> so in the roller rink, this is where you first made your mark as a DJ, right? Yes, absolutely. So um, tell me about playing for a roller rink. Like, how do you approach that kind of a gig back then? I, I don't even want to come out of context on this, but let me explain it, all right? So in 1976, King Kong the movie came out, the second one, um, the, you know. And Sheepshead Bay Movie Theater was a movie theater in the neighborhood. So I remember my dad took me to see the King Kong there, and the movie blew me away, right? So... Less than a year later, the roller skating rink opened up in the same spot as the movie theater. And when you're young and you you know you have an experience somewhere, wherever it may be, a store or a place, you go back there and it's not the same thing. Like you know, I thought I was going to see more movies in the Sheets Have a movie theater. So the roller skating thing kind of was intimidating to me because. I didn't know what it was. It was like, what do you mean they built a roller skating rink there? You think when you're a kid, you know everything. I didn't go down in the neighborhood for a year. And that year, they bought the movie theater to turn into this like multi-million dollar you know, roller skating rink. So, so my mother dumps me off there one Saturday. I remember the date, which is a crazy. I don't even know how I remember the date, but it was definitely May 11th, 1978 was the first day I went roller skating there. And my mother dumps me off at the skating rink by myself. And it only goes from 2 in the afternoon to 5 in the afternoon. It's Saturday afternoon. It's a Saturday afternoon session. So I didn't want to go by myself. I didn't know anybody. I didn't have no one to go with me. I was kind of like, you're just dumping me off here like this. And I had to wait on a line again. But when I got in and I put my skates on and I skate really like I could be a championship roller skater. Maybe not now, but back then I definitely was. So the second I got in there and I remember hearing what songs were like Gino Socio Dancer, disco record that was popular. Um, 
I Can't Stand the Rain by Eruption. And I knew all the music. So I'm looking and I look up. The DJ booth is like way up. You could see through the floor. It was like glass. And I was watching. And that's where I just put two to two together because the music was never stopping. I never really... It's weird because radio started doing DJ mixes around that time. So at that point, I never really heard DJ blending or mixing. I just knew that, you know, I thought it was you play a song and you play another song like they do, you know, on the radio. So I never heard mixing before. At that moment, that was it. It's a, there's a one or two pinnacle moments that change your life forever that day at the roller skating rink. Because I know I came home and I had a typewriter and I was typing up all the songs I heard and making charts. And I just got like really uh, interested in the whole entire thing. And I yeah, I do remember like, Thank God It's Friday by Love and Kisses on Casablanca. I always kept charts. So I remember all these songs, Risky Changes. Like disco, you, you can throw any disco record on. I'll tell you the artist, the year, the title. I, I'm like the minister of useless information with that. And you're like, <laughs> it's not useless information to people that want to know about it. I was like, yeah, but who cares about disco? It's 2015. But um, it's funny, man, because that roller skating rink opened like my eyes to pretty much, you know, the future of my teenage life. And I spent like four or five years every Saturday in there. Jumping ahead to your teenage life, this would be in the, the mid 80s or so. Yeah. The sound of this era in New York was freestyle. Absolutely. Break yes. down freestyle for us. Okay, so the disco era ended in 80. The hip hop thing started coming up 81, 82. When Run DMC came out, the rap game switched like overnight and Madonna had came out the same year. 82 is the year actually. Madonna used to go to the fun house with Jellybean Benitez DJed and Jellybean was going to be the guy. Nobody knew it at that point, but then 83 came and this electro, the 808 came out is what happened and Arthur Baker did Planet Rock. Again, April 17th, 1982, that was the day Planet Rock's release and I only remember this because I went to the record pool with my, an older friend of mine that was in one of the record pools in New York. And I'd always write everything down. So Planet Rock changed the game. The 808's on there. Everything that came out after with an 808, you would want to buy it because it had an 808. We didn't know at that time, but that machine really, uh, really shaped the future for everybody because it became electro, but electro became Latin hip-hop and then freestyle. Latin hip-hop, I explained it as um, just like an 808 with a, basic beat with some girl that don't really know how to sing too well with a couple of melody lines and you make you know you write songs i mean a lot of those songs were brilliant because they were so basic and they were so amateurish but with the 808 you get that boom in there and you know it just started a movement pretty much and um in those days we didn't have radio in new york from 82 is when wkt went off the air the first time and then in August, again, I don't know, I know the date again. It's August 15th, 1986 is when Hot 103 came back on the radio. So you had like four years where there was no dance music being played in New York. You had urban stations, but you didn't have anything with DJs or dance or, or anything until 86, August. And that's when Running by Information Society was one of the first big records that came out. And Running, it was a freestyle song, but it was made in Minneapolis, so it came off more like kind of the way if Prince would have did it being from Minneapolis than some kids doing it in New York. And it was had that Europop kind of flavor to it. And I just remember hearing that on the radio, I thought, wow, you know, we're going to have something big going on in New York again because now that dance music's being played on the radio, you know, so... I went into the studio and learned how to do this stuff. And um, the first records I made got played on the radio, but they were in light rotation. You needed to be like, you know, 
in like a company where they're paying these people off. I learned a lot about payola early on before my DJ career took off. So you figure like 86, 87, 88, it was all learning experience with music. And what happened, 1984, they raised the drinking age from 18 to 21. I had just turned 18 right after my dad got murdered. They raised the, um, the drinking age in December to... Um, 21 and this Were is you a night serious? I yeah mean... six weeks i was able to drink i even had a i had a dj job in long island and some skating rink from my friend had a spot and then we go out there and i, I had a you know i had a st- thing that was going to be steady and then they raised the eight the drinking age so you know i had like maybe five or six weeks and that was it and i'm like i got two and three quarter years i gotta wait now before i could even try to get this momentum going again so the only thing i could have done possibly was start making music because i couldn't do anything in the clubs you know i thought i'd get out of high school i get right into the clubs in new york and it didn't really happen like that so yeah so the freestyle music that's what i did i started writing songs and finding you know girls that would sing them and like i said just from being able to go up to a girl when i'm 12 and ask her to skate with me i could be in a mall and see a girl and just go up and be like I know this is going to be the craziest thing, but you look like you could sing, and I make music, and I would love to, you know. I was very sincere about it. It wasn't like, you know, and then after you meet him, of course, all right, whatever males tend to do in their minds <laughs> would happen. But at the beginning, it was like really was trying to get, you know, some music done, and we got a lot of girls that were really good. And no, I didn't have sex with all of them, but, you know, <laughs> sometimes, but no. But um. So how were you producing? I mean, where were you recording this stuff? Well, how did you get going? I met Tommy Musto from... Omar Santana, and Omar was a producer who was doing edits back then, and um, mind you, I mean, at that time, every song had to have edits on it. If you didn't have, like, multiple edits, it was it was part of the process of producing. You write the song, you produce it, you do the breakdown, then you do the dubs, and then you got to take the finished product, and then the company would send it to Omar, and he would do multiples. So I'd be in the studio with him, watching him cut tape, and it's not, I mean... The end work of an, a nice master edit sounds great when there's a little, you know, machine gun rapid editing, but to sit there to cut the reel-to-reel tape into little tiny pieces and tape it back together, and that's what you do all day, it get a little tedious, so. But I learned a lot from it. And then Omar, you know, was getting record deals with, he had major labels calling him, giving him tons of money. You know, he was like 17, I was 16, and I'm, I'm seeing like, you know, Electra Records giving him $500,000, $2,000, I'm thinking... This is going to be interesting because if he's getting that for just doing edits, why don't we write the songs from the get-go? And when I mentioned that to him, he's like, well, how are we going to do that? I was like, well, we just got to figure out what machines they make that, you know. So we got the Casios. You know, this is like before, even before sampling. Sampling didn't really happen until... um, the S900 came out, so it was like 86, 87, 88. There was no sampling technology, really. You had samplers, but they didn't have any time in them. So we, you know, got the Casios, we got the 808, we got a 909, and we started. I think, really, once you have an 808 or a 909, you're off and running because it's like you're halfway there with that. So <laughs> I would take shoeboxes full of letters that girls wrote me in high school, and I would read them, and I'd make the end, you know, the end words rhyme, and the song would come out of it somehow. And like I said, the first couple of songs I did got on the radio. I mean, it was light rotation, but I definitely could have been a major songwriter, but that wasn't my, it wasn't my calling. So that was just how I got into the music industry. Seems like the big success with Bones Breaks, with your own productions, really came once Europe caught on with this stuff. Yeah. Well, the Bones Breaks was about a year before. Bones Breaks, I was still doing freestyle. See, so what happened was 
when me and Omar started doing these tracks, we we wrote Sapphire, Don't Break My Heart. I, I'm not credited on it. I definitely am a ghostwriter on that track. But um, Don't Break My Heart by Sapphire was like one of the best sounding like freestyle records because Omar was really, really, I mean, I always thought it was a bad thing that he overproduced his tracks. But in the end, the overproduction was great because it meant that it was a full, everything sounded great. And, you know, our hero at that time was like Chris Barbosa, who did Shannon, Give Me Tonight and Let the Music Play, because he made, they weren't even called freestyle records. Those were like Latin hip hop or electro when he did Shannon. And Omar went as far as like, he goes, you know that that girl didn't sing the whole song. The chorus is by this guy, Jimmy Tunnell. And he goes, I think I'm going to get him to, get on this record because you know the girl's not really singing it she can't handle the whole song herself so they find this guy and he sings the chorus and i'm thinking we got a shannon record now it's like and that record was huge actually on cutting records and aldo marin from cutting records loved you know that we were so we were so like passionate about what we were doing that you know he gave us a shot so we had Karina come after that. I wrote for Carlos Berrios, and that was also, Carlos was another big freestyle producer. And we went through, you know, my beginning was, the first record I did was in 1985. It was called The Bopsy Twins by Def City Boys, rap record. I got Omar to do edits on that, and my boy Tony T produced it from the neighborhood. He's an older DJ friend of mine, so we were working on this thing for a while. This is right before um, Molly Mall did co-chilling for Prism Records. They had a label called Snowflake. In fact, the track that we did had Biz Marquee on it, but Molly wouldn't let Biz be on the record because he knew he was starting Cold Chillin', so he wasn't able to get on it. And I think that since it was the last record on that label, they didn't push it, so it didn't really happen. Not a big deal because sitting here right now telling you about me producing my new Eminem album and me and my house in Hollywood Hills is not really what Frankie <laughs> Bones was meant to do. I mean, but I think about it, I just met all these people along the way. I could have went that route and I probably would have had a lot of success in it, but, you know, my calling was bringing this rave thing back to America and... um I never looked back. So, how did you first sort of catch wind of this rave thing? It was it was obviously happening in Europe in the UK before it was happening over here. Yeah, this started in like '88 in the UK. The Bones Breaks records are what it did it for me because now let me just explain what the Bones Breaks were. I mean, when we did freestyle records, we'd have all these little snippets of things we didn't use. So if if I liked the beats, the bonus beat, if we did an edit that didn't wind up on the album, I'd save them. And I'm thinking, all right, I put four of these on one side, four of them on another. They're all random. They're all samples. They're all bits. There's nothing that's finished. It's all scrappy stuff. And when I took it to the label, I worked for uh, Pexton Records. It was a record pressing plant. My job was I would put the records in the sleeves, put them in the jackets, and shrink wrap them. This only lasted four months until I had my own office and I was running record labels. But... um. One day I'm at this company at Paxton working, doing my you know routine, and I hear them playing a demo up in the office, and it was a Todd Terry track called um, Masses at Work, All Right, All Right. It was the first one. And I come running off like I'm sitting there on a stool, you know, jacketing records, and I'm like, run upstairs. What is that? They're like, what are you doing up here? I'm like, that song, what is it? They go, do you like it? I'm like, do I like it? I never heard nothing like that before. That's awesome. What is it? So then they, you know, explaining, we were going to just pass on it. We were about to throw it in the trash. They were going to actually just dump the record, not even put it out. And I'm like, guys, if you put that on vinyl, you'll sell 5,000 in them. And they, like, look at each other, scratching their heads, like, really? You know, we were, 
you know, Tommy Musto, North Car Productions, we were an upstart company. They they had a couple of successful things, but it wasn't nowhere near what was going to happen in 88, 89. It went from a shoestring budget and the pressing plant was a Pexton. They were involved, but they were like the manufacturing people. But they had some labels and Underworld Records was one of their labels on a Pexton. And Bones Breaks was one of their first, you know, times they ever pressed it. And I think the... The first one sold like 11,000. The second one, definitely 22,000 records. And they were pretty much back to back. And for the time, yeah. was, was that a big success? I mean, today that would be well, absolutely massive. Yeah, yeah. I mean, no, that was slim because, I mean, records were the choice format back then. What, what gave us the edge was we owned six presses. So we didn't have to go anywhere. To, they did everything. You just bring the master in and then they make the mother, you know, the plates up and you put them in the machine. So machines... All they wanted to do was have their machines going 24-7. When I got there, it was a 9-to-5 operation. They opened the gates at 9, they pressed till 5, and then they go home. These guys wanted to make money, so they wanted their machines going 24-7. So I was like, well, if you allow me to help you guys with this, your machines will be running. That you know, And I mean, Todd Terry wound up doing um, Black Riot for Fourth Floor Records, which was Northcott's label, A Day in the Life. And that I think those machines ran six weeks straight just pressing that one record because that thing sold like forty or fifty thousand copies in you know about a month and about thirty days. That's a that's a lot for a independent label that has no promotion. Before you heard that Todd Terry record that day yeah. up in the office, I mean, were you aware of this sound? Was this music that you knew about? <sighs> well, Todd also produced freestyle records, so I never heard him do like. I, I, I'm not going to call that a Bones Break style because that was a Todd Terry style. I sure. mean, the first Masters at Work record wasn't a house record. It was basically, it didn't have an 808, but he had a Casio RZ1. And RZ1 was the, the, you know, the cheapest drum machine you could own in that era. But at the same time, it was a classic drum machine. Nobody really used it because, you know, if you had an 808, you paid over a grand. 909, you paid over a grand at that time. Cassia, you get for 200 bucks. You just go in and buy it, and it's this little rinky-dink thing. But, I mean, it wound up becoming a legendary drum machine. But Todd knew how to, like, really get the most out of his machines. And, you know, it had a lot of Funhouse influence. All those records that I used to grow up with listening in the Funhouse. I mean, me and Todd had our differences because, you know, like anything else, he was the number one guy. And I was maybe six, three to six months behind him. And, you know, when you're from Brooklyn, it's always competitive. So... You know, I'd sample his stuff on my... You know, the thing is like this. All right. You make a career off of sampling other people's records. So you can't get mad at me if I sample your record if you're sampling everybody else's record to make your career. That's how I always looked at it. I'm like, if I do original things, anyone could take my music and use it for whatever they want. I won't get mad. Few people, they get a little mad. So, But um, the Bones Breaks, yeah, lots of samples. But I used to like put the drum machines and some you know keyboards over nobody did that at that point nobody well i mean like Cavillis and cole when they did um do it properly yeah that was you know they took a, a no way back by adonis and they played keyboards over it back then you know on the radio shows yeah you play some keyboards over stuff it was cool but nobody would ever press it to a record from another record and then put keyboards over it and we would just like i said most breaks was an experiment i was like we we put eight of these things on a on a record it'll definitely sell and it did and that's what got me over to europe because they started taking you know like a liking to what we were doing i mean were these records making their way over to europe as as imports were they licensed to They're european licensed, labels but they they first went over 
straight as we put them out out of a Pexton in the shrink wrap. There's something about the UK that their records they didn't shrink wrap, so I think the imports meant more to them because they were they were shrink wrapped, and you would like it. Probably it's like remember it's Christmas. You open the Christmas wrapping to get your presents. Well, they're literally shiny. They're yeah, gonna glint in the lights. But the you know, same the shop. thing with their records here is like that they had the little sleeves and they weren't shrink wrapped. That gave us like wow, that's an import. I want to buy it. If it would have had shrink wrap on it, it would have been as exciting to us. So I guess it works both ways across the pond. So. So the Bones Breaks record goes over to London, and I'm starting to, you know, back. We didn't even have, I think the fax machine came out in 89, if I'm correct. We didn't have a fax machine till late 89. You used to have to telex people overseas. I don't even know what a telex machine is. It looks like this big ass, like, I don't even know what it is, but you had to telex people to get your record deals. So it's really funny. Or you talk on the phone, but it was like, we didn't have this instant gratification with everything we do like we do in 2015 it was like you had to make the call it's seven hours ahead you had to wait for them to get back it could be like weeks before you get something going so i got wind that the bones breaks were you know starting to sell in london and um that's when it all just happened all at once like in 88 like late 88 the licensing deals would come then you would get advances on top of that and then you would get compilation albums so some of our records were getting licensed to different territories and you would make you could make anywhere from 10 to 50 grand just on territory licenses so that happened pretty quick and we were like a um we were like an assembly line. I mean, remember I said I was working in the pressing plant, putting the records in the jackets, the shrink wrap on the records and putting them in boxes. When we started doing production in the studio, we worked the same way. We'd make a track, we'd put it here, then we'd make another track, put it there, and it was still that assembly line. So when we came in, we steamrolled. We didn't have to wait for anything. We just had the records when we needed them, test pressings within five days, and we were able to just have a string of music coming out, and it all exploded at once. And like I said, we went from a shoestring budget into remixing and, and doing remixes, licensing territorial stuff, putting out releases overseas. I mean, multi-million dollars was flowing through that company by like like 1989. It was amazing. I mean, I, I was still young and I never thought it was going to happen. And when it happened, it happened really quick. So I mean, did you have any idea, though, that the, the sort of context for the music that you were making was much different over there than it was here. I mean, these were getting played at parties that didn't really exist here. Yeah, we didn't we didn't have well, it was underground. There was people in America that liked our stuff. You know, Detroit, Chicago, Los Angeles, New York, Miami were your markets. So freestyle was a Miami market, but Chicago and Detroit, we started learning about their stuff. They started learning about us. I mean, I know when I met like Derek May and and Kevin Saunderson and all the guys from Detroit, they found out about our stuff at the same time we found out about their stuff. But I, then again, I did sample a couple things from Kevin Saunderson, like the Good Life, uh, you know, the piano. So these guys were looking, they didn't like when people took their sounds or sampled them. And, you know, in New York, we were cut and paste guys, all of us. That's what the New York scene was in 1988, 89. We were taking every moment we learned on a dance floor of last Saturday and trying to make it into a new track for next Saturday. So that's what our music was about, you know, cut and paste and stuff. Yeah, I had no idea what was going on in London. I just knew that when they're licensing to territories and then you're getting on compilation albums, that something big was about to happen. And that's when we got the call if we wanted to go over there to play. Would it be fair to say that that trip to the UK changed your life? Oh my God, I mean, in ways that I, it's 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 uncanny how, how much it changed because... 
we got the call in May, I think, May of 89, that, and it was, who became a good friend, Tim Taylor, who owns Missile Records, he became a big techno producer in his own right. He was just working at, at an agency that did rock bands. It was called JSC. They were a very well-known UK company, and he brought it to their attention that, you know, this DJing thing might become something they would be interested in if they wanted to do a little, you know, experiment to see if it works. So I get the call, this company, Energy, who did parties with 5,000 people. We're going to, you know, bring us over, me and Tommy Musto, to play a DJ set in an open-air party or festival. They didn't call them raves yet. I mean, it was still new to them. The two summers of love, they had the one in 88 and the one in 89. The one in 88 set them up to do 89, and all my records in 88, that was my biggest year. We had records coming out constantly, so... People that like my music might not know the same songs, but they know the songs. It's one of them or two of them, so that's how we got there in 89. I went and I recorded Call of Techno was the first song that I did. I made that track. I wrote that in June of 89. I wanted to have something to go over to London with that I could perform. You know, because we were big on uh, the DJing and the track acts. Were, that's how New York was. You had one DJ and you had a bunch of track acts that might perform this song, lip sync, whatever it was, and one DJ. So I figure... If I'm going to go DJ there, I just don't want to be a DJ. Let me perform my new track, which I did, but that wasn't important. They didn't really care about the track at the end of it. They wanted me there as a DJ. I just, I, I kind of overcompensated. So that's not, a, it wasn't a problem because I already overcompensated my career in New York where I wanted to be a big DJ in New York and I just totally overshadowed it by winding up in London. Like everything I wanted to happen in London, I wanted to happen in New York. And it pretty much happened simultaneously, but... When you're playing to people like to twenty five thousand people in a field, because that's what the first party was. They were they told us five thousand, <laughs> and we're driving there, and I'm seeing cars parked in these fields for miles, and I'm just driving. There's way too many cars here to be five thousand. There's got to be ten thousand people here. Twenty five thousand people. It was just getting light out, and we we're walking with this big ass record box carrying it through the field in the mud, and I saw twenty five thousand people in that field. It was like I could not. It was like being like in Disney World because you never saw that many people in one spot. Wait, and wait, they're going to let me play my records on this stage to all those people and all those people are dancing and it's 4.30 in the morning and the sun's coming up or it's getting a light out. And really? <laughs> so <laughs> There's a story, I think, about you driving up to this party. You, you'd just been given like the first ecstasy pill that, that you ever oh, had. And you, um, you hear <laughs> on a tape, I think, in, in your car... One no, your, in another car. In another car, car. One of your that wasn't comes the first on. energy. This is. It's funny because that was a, just a month later. I, I was totally on the first trip to England. I didn't know what ecstasy was. So I mean, now people are like, oh, it's been around since the eighties. It's like, listen, in the funhouse, people would trip on acid. They would trip on mescaline. There was angel dust. There was all types of drugs in New York in the early eighties. Ecstasy was never in New York City until it first got here in uh, you know late eighty nine ninety. But. Uh, People tell me, well, in the gay scene, they had it since 76. I mean, they might have because my friend Wade Hampton, who is, you know, original guy from the Star Club in Dallas, Texas. That's where the first ecstasy came from in the 80s. I knew about that, but I didn't know the attachment to it all. But there was no other city in America that took that drug and brought it into the club scene. It didn't exist. So when I get to England and I asked them, what is everybody in this field doing? And they told me ecstasy. I'm like, really? And then they wanted me to do it right then and there. But I... I'm there to DJ. I don't know what this thing is going to do to me. So I was pretty much, you know, just blown away by the amount of people there. And um, 
That was August 26th of 89. A month later, when I, that happened with the field thing with the cars, I wound up out there doing, we had some kind of like, I had gigs, but the energy party, Little Louis Vega was supposed to play. This is what happened, okay? He was on the flyer, but his management wouldn't allow him to play a legal rave party, so I took his spot at that energy. So it was the second one after the first one I just did. I'm taking Louis' spot. We're driving out to the country. The cops are trying to block the roads off the roundabouts because all the UK works on roundabouts. So if the cops block off certain parts of the roundabout, you're not going to get to where this aircraft hangar is. So we playing cat and mouse for like seven hours from midnight to like seven in the morning on these country roads you'd be like cars just going the same direction no everybody's got to turn around and go back and just like going like it was a crazy crazy like you know just and i was with tim taylor and colin favor and colin favor just passed away last week uh yeah i just want to say you know respect out to colin favor he was uh Yo, those seven hours in that car with that guy it changed my life i mean and that was when i did that first ecstasy too and was sitting on the country road and I hear just as long as I got you that I did on Looney Tunes with Lenny coming out of the car in front and call it techno coming out from the car behind. I think it was called techno. It might have been a different track, but they were definitely both my tracks and major meltdown right there. That's like, it's, to me, I mean, that would be the equivalent of like, you know, going to, you know, a party or a rave and going back to your hotel with the two most beautiful girls you've ever seen in your life. And that never happened to me at that point. So at that point, hearing those two songs in England while I'm trying to get to this party was like the most, you know, amazing thing that happened to me in my life at that point. Did you think from like very early on after encountering this whole scene in England that this is something you could bring back that you could do in New York City? Oh, wow. This is interesting because this is how I'm going to get Basically, what happened in America, once the past meets the present, that's when the future arrives. And I don't think it's happened yet because of the switch of all raves in the 90s. It kind of died out. Then it picked up again, became ADM. And now it's this huge, monstrous money-making machine, which took them 20 years to get you know here. Did I think it was going to be big in America? I knew it was going to be big, but not like what they were doing there. And... What happened with that was I got booked to play in Los Angeles before the race scene happened in America. I got to play Los Angeles off of my credentials from London, not from Brooklyn, because had they known I was from Brooklyn, I would have never got the booking. But I was being represented by an agency from London, and they asked who the hottest guys were out. So just like anything else, they were throwing the names out there. Frankie Bones was a name that was big in only the UK. I was getting gigs in New York, but I wasn't really known on a, on a level like that. So Yeah, I mean, why... Just out of curiosity, I mean, why would people in L.A. not want to book a Brooklyn DJ? I just, I it, because it's the same, It's a, this was like they were doing undergrounds in Los Angeles, and most of the promoters there at the time were either surfer, skater type people or Hollywood guys. The first people to bring DJs in were totally guys with money. They were either filmmakers or just hipsters or... They were just new to the whole concept, reading like ID or Face Magazine, and they see, you know, because again, there was no computers. You couldn't get on a computer and look up something, Google it. So they were just getting these their info out of like magazines like ID or The Face or whatever other magazines were popular. And they started like wanting to bring over their guys. So, you know, at the time, I guess Trevor Fung was a big name from the UK and uh, he was a big guy, but. They try to book him and he doesn't wind up showing up at the party. So now I'm playing a party in Los Angeles in 1990. It was June of 90. So I've only known what the rave scene was at that point, eight or nine months. Now, what happened in those eight, nine months from August of 1989 to, you know, to that point was 
Because a lot of people say the rave scene in America started in San Francisco. And I, I'm the only person that had the firsthand experience. So, you know, arguing on the Internet's not going to save me. But I remember on October 17th, 1989, San Francisco had a major earthquake. So their shot of starting the rave scene in America was far and few because you had a major earthquake. There's no way. Yeah, I'm not saying people weren't playing records there, but there was no raves going to happen after a major earthquake. So this thing comes in, in like Los Angeles, June 1st, 1990, I play at the Mayan Club. Mayan Club is an awesome club. I played with Marcus Wyatt, who was a, the most popular house guy in Los Angeles at the time. But it was like New York. You had the club scene, and then you had the rave scene or the underground scene. And most of it didn't mix up at the time. So because if you go into a club, it's a club. These guys were doing, you know, breaking into warehouses. And when I saw them do it in Los Angeles... Because they said it would never happen in America. I was like, I'm going to do this in America. I opened up my record store in April of 90, Groove Records in Brooklyn. Then we had the Happy Land fire happen in the Bronx where 87 people got, you know, murdered. At, uh, not murdered, but they got, uh, the guy was jealous. He threw a firebomb in the place and 87 people died at Happy Land. That was March 25th, 1990. So if you're looking at it from that point of view, the fire department's not really going to be too happy with other people trying to stuff people into abandoned places or other warehouses, even if they're legal, to do these raves. So I never thought it was going to happen in New York. It was a violent time. You had the mafia running around killing people. You had the racial, there was a lot of racial things going on at that point. So when I went to L.A. and see him do it there, I knew I was going to try to do something in New York, but we had to have a reason to do Storm Rave. It wasn't just like we were going to throw everybody in there and it was going to be a peace, love, unity, and all that. It was like... We had to start some. So the Peace, Love, Unity movement, which became Plur, is how we, you know, came into New York. You know, Adam, my brother, painted um, a subway car. It said Peace, Love, Unity. It was right after this kid, Yusef Hawkins, got murdered in Bensonhurst for going in the neighborhood to buy a bike or a car. And he was a black kid and you know, lynch mob of white kids. And this has happened all through the 80s. It happened three or four times. And every time a racial incident would happen, the whole city would go on lockdown. In fact, when my father got murdered, it was due to Bernard Getz shooting four black kids on the subway a month earlier. Now, I can't say that was 100% the reason why it happened, but it was a botched robbery where the white man was in the wrong neighborhood at the wrong time, and he took a bullet in the back of the head. And, you know, like I said, graffiti was so cool that I'd never, I only held the individual responsible. I never look at a race, and you know, or a creed or skin color. It's all down to individuals. If you're cool, you're cool. And there's so many cool people out there in New York. It's like that I don't get caught up in the racial things. So that was good for me because... When I started this peace, love, unity movement, that's what I wanted. I want everybody to be friendly because I had friends that were Puerto Rican that I want coming to my parties, and I had Asian friends, and I had black friends, and I had like, and I wanted them all to come together with the music. So we started pushing this peace, love, unity movement, running around with American flags. We looked like hippies breaking into warehouses, and then storm started. And yeah, when people would come in those warehouses, gangs of kids that would have normally fought with each other. The music would hold them together where they didn't fight with each other. It was the most amazing thing I've ever seen. As long as that music was playing, everybody knew they were in something special. And we didn't have a problem for like the first two years in New York. Not one problem. It happened after, but I think everywhere gets a two-year like you know honeymoon pretty much. So we had 91 and 92, which went down in New York the same way it went down in the UK in 88 and 89. The same thing, unity. Those football hooligans in the UK, like Manchester against, you know, Liverpool, those people came together because of the music. And all of a sudden, they're all hugging each other and they're all dancing like house music. Now, that wasn't supposed to happen, but it, it 
pretty much went around the world the same way. You know, it brought a lot of people that weren't supposed to be together together. And, you know, without going to Los Angeles, I would have never, you know, I would have never know, known that. So the music, though, at Storm Raves, it definitely got heavier, though. I mean, it went in a little bit of a different direction than it did in the UK, maybe even other places in the, in the US. I mean, what happened there? Well, the Bones Breaks was like I said, that went over to, the, to London. And then the, the, the record I played at Energy was called Success and Effect. It's a Miami bass record, a bonus beat. Everybody thought it was my record, actually, but... That thing is just like, it's it's a prototype jungle record with chops and stuff. It's got a lot of the choppy thing going on. And that became, you know, Let the Bass Kick. Everybody knows that song from that era. A lot of people don't know that it's from Miami because um, me and Lenny D gave our extra copy to Carl Cox. And I explained to Carl Cox when he wasn't a producer how you make records quick by taking this record and writing this beat over it and just putting it out, put out a white label, stamp it, and that's it. And Carl went and did that about three months later with that song, put a keyboard line in something else, and it, it was his first hit record. So, you know, it was basically the start of... A lot of people's careers, because once they noticed that they weren't ever made a record, but you can make a record from other records, that's when everybody started doing it. And Breakbeat was the, you know, hardcore sound in 91. Before the German stuff and the harder stuff happened, it was all about UK hardcore, which was the prototype jungle records. Everybody did Breakbeats. So our scene was pretty much aligned with LA because we had the record distributors in New York and all the music would go from the distributors here out there. So it was the same music every week. I just realized this last week at this Nocturnal Wonderland 20th anniversary in Cali because all the old school DJs were playing all those records from that era. I'm like, damn, this is like early Storm Rave. It was the sound of 91. The sound of 92 was different. It started getting hardcore and more techno and more militant and more fast and more intense. Whereas in 91, it was a lot of break beats and um, the breakbeat thing. A lot of people don't think we played that style, but we definitely had those records, you know, in our rotation too. So, but it definitely got harder in '92, and we watched genres like, you know, hardcore Gabba and trance, and like, just emerged. They kind of came out of house and techno, and then they started getting harder, and everything started to go. You know, jungle started to become its own thing, and um, yeah, it was great seeing those those records being able to do that at the time that people were getting into different sounds and stuff. The locations for these parties, I mean, they sound absolutely crazy to sort of modern ears or contemporary ears. I mean, how are you going about finding places to do these raves? Well, like I said, when I was growing up, I lived on that dead end street and there was a freight train tracks right next to my house. So, you, you know, you put young kids on train tracks. I, I mean, I don't know if this works like this everywhere, but I know if there's freight train tracks in, in, in the equation and you're a young kid exploring around, it goes into some Tom Sawyer, you know, like your missions where there's trains and you're going exploring and you're burning things and you're breaking things, you're breaking into things. I did all that as a kid. It's like, it was a laundry warehouse where they did like industrial laundry and we'd ride, ride down the hills. Not hills, they were like actually ramps in this warehouse in like the laundry carts as kids. So we were doing a lot of mischievous stuff. So yeah, I mean, on that note, we wound up on the same tracks that I used, that these, you know, that I used to play on to do these parties. We'd make everybody park like a half a mile down where they can park. Then they come up on the tracks and we'd have flashlights or we'd be like down there or there'd be something lit where they'd have to walk down the tracks where the cops weren't going to come. Because once we get a party going, you don't want it to stop on, you know, with the police coming in. So, yeah, the, the brickyard was one place in Brooklyn where it was a masonry yard. 
we used to like type up documents to say like you know that my uncle owned this place. I didn't know who the guy was that owned it, but in case the cops came, but we never had a problem in those places. We'd go to like nine in the morning, and um, never had a problem. The first one we had a problem because we tapped into the lamppost. This is interesting because like the hip hop scene was ten to I'd say ten to seventeen years ahead of the rave scene in New York. So we followed what they did. We tapped into the light pole, put the electric on. Boom! We got electricity. We got sound. Perfect. 6.30 in the morning, the sun comes up, the sensor on the light shuts off, and all the power goes down. <laughs> and we're just standing there like, oh, my God, what do we do now? Like, we, like, uh, I was like, couldn't not believe. I said, hasn't there been one hip-hop party that went past dawn that we would have known <laughs> this already? It's like, now we got to get generators for next week. So it just made everybody more, you know, thrilled that next week was going to come. We were going to go to 12 in the afternoon. So we were a little disappointed that first night. But I was just blown away by the fact that I don't think a hip-hop party ever went past, well, an illegal, you know, one that jacking into a lamppost for electricity. I don't think it ever went past, you know, the morning. It's pretty crazy hearing all these stories about the stuff that you were up against doing these events. There's the mob. There's other club promoters calling the cops on on your events. How did you stay motivated? I mean, I opened up the record store to sell music. Now, if the biggest ecstasy supplier in the world somehow became my friend, um, this is like I can't confirm nor deny this <laughs> happened, but let's just say I met the guy that could bring the most and the best to New York. Let's just say. I wasn't going to be the guy to sell it out of my record store. I mean, there was a record on Sleeping Bear Records, and the name of the artist was Ecstasy, and the track was Don't Play Me Raw. It's a song. So these two guys, squirrely guys, come in the store, and I swear to God, they look like Beastie Boys in the movie uh, in the, uh, video Sabotage, like dressed up like cops. Like, you could tell they were cops. And they're like, you got that stuff? And I'm like, what stuff? You know that stuff. I'm like, Ecstasy? And they're like, lit up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was like, walk over to the wall, take the Ecstasy record by, you know, the group ecstasy handed to the guy. One guy looks at the other. No, no, we don't want records. I'm like, look, it says ecstasy. That's what you're asking me for, right? It says it right there. That's what you want. I'm telling you, that's the hottest thing out right now. <laughs> they just look at each other and they walk out. And then I, I look and I'm like, you got five old thinking that we're selling pills in here. I'm like, <laughs> it's like blew me away, you know, because I knew right away. Basically, what happened was, you know, me and Lenny started to travel uh, a lot. We had a residency in Staten Island at the Wave. And before Lord Michael was a big promoter at the Limelight, he was friends of ours from Staten Island. So we let him have our night. And whatever he did with that, he ran with it. And whoever I met that might have or might not have, I met with him. And that's how that all happened. But, I, you know, my people were supposed to be taken care of. And I didn't want to, I just wanted to, like, uh, put you with him. And I don't need to know about any of this because I'm not a drug dealer. I never was a drug dealer. I never wanted to be a drug dealer. It, was it a way to make money? Hell yeah, that kid made more money in the short time at the limelight than I ever made with my music career, but at least I did what I did legally, so. Ooh. Yeah, so the limelight era was cool too because that was the only club in New York that played techno, and I mean, we, we you know, the groups of kids that were around doing it then, we did something that nobody ever did before in America. We created something out of the, the rave scene that nobody's ever seen, like, on that level. I mean, hip-hop definitely was on that level when it was created, but we took something that wasn't supposed to happen here and made it happen here. And without seeing that Los Angeles part of it, I would have never did that because I would have believed it wouldn't have never happened in New York. Is it also worth mentioning that something that was stacked against what you guys were doing or that make it more, made it more difficult was you were doing this thing as Outer Burroughs kids. I mean, you were coming oh, out yeah, from yeah, that yeah, angle. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's exactly what I was saying when I first started this interview with you guys, like how... 
We would go to Kent Avenue and went Williamsburg before all those beautiful like buildings were built. They were just abandoned warehouses. We like walked right up to the edge of the East River, like putting our two fingers up at Manhattan for, <laughs> because like I said, a mega club in New York regardless, was Studio Fifty Four, Roseland, Roxy, Funhouse, whatever it was. They only hired one DJ a night. People were like, no, there was parties where they had two DJs on a lineup. No, no, they did not. It was one DJ and a bunch of track acts. So. You go to Palladium and you talk to, at that time, Cornelis Crane was the big promoter there. And he liked, they, everybody liked Frankie Bone's idea when I bring it to them. And then two weeks later, they'd steal my ideas and then they'd not like me anymore. Like, it was just how New York club policy works. So I was like, you know what? We'll just take it to the boroughs and do it our way. So when we were doing it like that, a storm rave would have 5,000 people. And that night, the limelight would be like, on that weekend, Where's there 3,000 people? There are 2,000 people. They were all at my party, so nobody went there. So it became like a Manhattan-Brooklyn thing for a minute. But it was funny because, you know, Brooklyn was not a cool place. If you're in Manhattan, you're in Manhattan. You don't really... It didn't become cool till years later, you know, when, when Williamsburg got established. Of course, now it's the place where everything is. I would have never believed that was going to happen, but I'm glad it did. But the Brooklyn I'm from, now you were outcast, so... You know, we were doing outlaw parties and, and raves at these places that I'm glad that, you know, nobody ever really got hurt or died at any of these parties because we were doing stuff in dangerous, really dangerous. I would never do that today. It was like we were reckless back then. So and um, the sound, you know, went along with it. It got really hard and aggressive. I mean, you know, the Detroit techno sound definitely is just uh, but it was running alongside Rotterdam. It was running alongside the German stuff. And I still loved house music. I mean, even even when we were into that, you know, the sun comes up. It was always time to slow it down. You know, you can't go like, you know, 190 BPMs all night, you know. So when the sun comes up, we got like a little more cultured and a little bit like what they would call like tropical house or pool house, you know, mellow out now, you know. So that's why our parties went to nine in the morning. Is there a moment from Storm Rave from that era that really sticks with you, uh, a favorite moment, something that really sums it up for you? Oh, just the insanity of what was going on there. But uh, the last storm rave, we had a snowstorm. And um, before New Year's, it never snowed before New Year's in, in America that I remember from 1992 before. People tell me, you know, it snows before New Year's in New York. Now we know I, it's happened three or four times since. But in 1992, it does not snow before New Year's. So I play in Toronto on Friday. And I played Storm Rave on Saturday in Staten Island. So Friday night, the whole entire Northeast from Washington, D.C. to Toronto and up into Canada got blanketed by a nor'easter. And um, if you just looked up on YouTube, nor'easter date was December 12th, 1992. You'll see videos that come up and you'll see how much it snowed out. There's one guy playing with his dog and the dog is like, the, the, the dog's <laughs> up to its head in snow. So, so no one's thinking about raving. Yeah, well, I mean, at this point, I'm in Toronto. I got to get back to my party because I just did my track, showed them we could do this. And I just had test pressings and I wanted to play this song that night. And the song goes, it's it's a sample of Flavor Flavor. It goes, show them we could do this. Show them we could do this. We always knew this. Just looped with heartbeats. And I'm in Toronto. It's 7 o'clock in the morning. My flight's at 8. Lady goes, we could get you on a flight for Wednesday. I'm like, what today is? Today's Saturday, right? She's like, I know it's snowed out, but Wednesday? She goes, yeah, you're not going to be getting out of here till Wednesday. All these people are trapped here with you. I'm like, Wednesday? <laughs> I can't say Wednesday because it's like, you know, go get some plows, plow your airport, and let's, you know, I didn't realize the extent of the snow was going to be that bad. She's like, why don't you go check Greyhound? And I'm like, 
if you guys ain't playing flying planes what makes you think the buses are going to be running and then i thought amtrak so i take this cab down to this amtrak station and there's only one train leaving toronto and it was leaving in 48 minutes from the time i got there it was going to albany new york i figured i'll do better in albany new york than i'm gonna do sitting here in toronto so let me get on this train so about 14, 16 hours goes by. This is what would be a 57-minute flight. It's taken me now 16 hours to get back to Albany. And I didn't know what I was going to do from Albany to New York here. I just knew it was two hours away from New York. So if I made it to Albany, I'd probably be all right. I never stole a car in my life. I was going to steal a car that night if I had to make a phone call and be like, how do you hotwire a car? I mean, it was still 1992. So back then, you know, with General Motors, it's something about you break the steering column, you touch two wires, the car starts. I have no idea how, but I would have called somebody if, if it came to that. But what happened was, as I'm on the train station wondering what I'm going to do, I hear this guy, a conductor on a train parked in the platform next. He goes, hey, Mike, we're going to take this one into Penn Station. And there was one door just open on the train on each side of the door, and I jumped in. So we get down to, like, Kingston, New York, around there, and Motorman comes in. What are you doing in here? I'm like, I'm a stowaway. I heard you were going to Penn Station or Grand Central. I don't know where the train was. I think it went to Grand Central, actually. But I was like, you're going to New York, and I got emergency. I have to be there, so I'm a stowaway. And he wound up giving me a Pepsi, showing me the controls of the train, how to operate the train. I'm like, yeah, this is good for future. You know, this is for future stuff that I need to do. But um, I get into uh, Grand Central, it was at, um, I think I got in about 11.05. And my set was uh, supposed to be 12.30 in Staten Island. And it snowed. I mean, it definitely snowed like two feet. It was a foot to two feet wherever I was during the day. So it happened to snow that much. And I take the subway to South Ferry. Now the ferry's running. So I get on the 1230. I think it was a 1230 uh, boat. And it takes 20 minutes. So my set was supposed to be at 1. I think I got in at 1250. I got in at 12.50, and I had five minutes to make it to my set. My friend picked me up. I basically walked on stage the time I was supposed to play. And then I'm telling everybody this this crazy story about what just happened. And I played that song, showed them we could do this, and the place went bananas. And, yeah, that was it. I never wanted to throw a storm wave after that <laughs> night. It was over. It was, to me, to call it storm, the flyer said, storm warning in effect for the tri-state area. On that date, in October, I made the flyer. It's like, I'm not Al Roker. I don't do weather, but it said it right on the fly. I was like, this is a sign from up there that I should not do this anymore. I mean, so, what a what a way to go out, right? I know, I know. It was, it was amazing. It was biblical. I mean, absolutely biblical because that was it. I knew there couldn't be any more storm rays after that, so I stopped. Did you have an idea after that what would be next? My thing was I always knew with the business end of this that I wanted to do this as, like, practicing like you know this whole plur thing that came about after which we were calling plum it was a movement i everybody that's done the music was doing it for the music i was doing it for the movement to create one yeah i knew that this was going to be a big culture for america never as big as it got because i didn't think that it could become pop and still be liked you know when something comes like pop it doesn't really have the same the same meaning but um whatever's happening in electronic dance music edm today is comes from rave it's straight rave it's exactly the same like i i don't know why all the terms would change i guess just you know a couple of years might do that but edm and rave are the same thing molly and ecstasy are the same thing it's you know festies are ravers it's the same thing it's just like they change the terminology you know in a way i feel like i'm part of a lost generation you know because rave and electronica Electronica was what they were calling it in the 90s, kind of faded away. 
and the crack house law thing came into effect around 2000, 2001, and then 9-11 happened, and all those things compounded. It never went away, but it ended. Like, the golden era of raving in America ended, and this new EDM culture was starting to grow out of that. And then we had internet, and everybody got on the grid, and that's why you've seen this massive explosion of, you know, DJs and parties because now everybody's on the grid. It's interesting what you say about being part of a lost generation. There really was sort of this rift between that era that you were part of sort of what's happening now or what started to happen a few years ago or something. It's always been a future forward movement. So to look back at things, it's either you're here and now looking towards tomorrow. And, you know, I mean, if a kid's producing today, you know, we're in the studio, you guys are making a new track, let's say. Who really cares about what anybody did in 1990 when you're here in, in 2015? So 25 years go by, and it's a double-edged sword for me because, I mean, I should be, like, on a pedestal, like, you know, I don't want to say Elvis because I'm not, I'm not a performer like that, but I mean in the creation of something, you know, I mean, like, with rock and roll, a lot of people know who did the first rock stuff in the 50s and then stuff in the 60s. All with hip hop like Cool Herc, you know, we know Cedric Avenue, we know the Bronx, nineteen seventy-three. But yet, see, with that, it's different because this is a guy that only was a DJ and only through parties never made any music after that. So where we created a movement, we were always making music and it's been going on a lot longer now. Like like I said, I modeled mostly everything I learned in America to get rave happening off of hip hop. So, I mean, what I already knew, you know, they used to do it out in the park. Okay, if they used to do it out in the park, let's go to the park and do it, you know. So we would go to the park and do that. And then just seeing like how big it's grown, it's because everybody's on the Internet now. We're all in the grid. You could be in Halifax, Nova Scotia and have the hottest techno as quick as anybody else. So. That's the uh, end side of something that we had that you had to have the records back then. You had to pay for things. You had to, you know. It's 9-11 today. And when you walked into the studio, you said that that had gotten you thinking a lot about your career because you said it had a lot to do with sort of how things have worked out with sort of where everything ended up going. Tell me about that. Okay, I mean, so what September? Yeah, I mean, September 11th to me. It's 14 years later, and I know what I was doing 14 years ago right now. I was sitting in front of my house. I lived in a really nice house in Queens that I didn't own. I rented, but I had a couple of cars. I'm looking at my Lexus, and I'm thinking I, I started feeling, felt like kind of ashamed to myself about how Americans live their lives, you know, because I noticed it the first time in this house I lived in, there was a white picket fence in front of the house, and I never noticed a white picket fence. And then I'm hearing this song in my head, ah, oh, house, it's a very, very, very fine house. And I started getting angry, like, because, like, we just got attacked. And this is, like, just hours after 9-11 happened. I just started feeling really guilty or, like, being American, that when I traveled, people hated Americans. I already knew this, but it was going to be worse now. And then I knew a lot of people were going to not be with us after that day because of what just happened. And I slept right up to the point where the second tower fell. And then when I put the news on, my whole world, I had to jump out on my bicycle and ride out to Forest Hill Park to see the city over the ledge there to see what was going on. And all I saw was a mushroom cloud. And... You know, we had Sonic Groove Records in Greenwich Village. It's no, no, like a mile and maybe a mile and a half away. And, you know, we did really well with our store in Manhattan. In fact, everybody with record stores in Manhattan did great from the 90s until 2001, until that day. And I knew in that instant, how are you going to sell vinyl after a day like that? But we 
we were determined. We were like, you know, we weren't going to let the terrorists ruin our day, but they really did. They ruined, they ruined our culture. They ruined our nation. They did something, you know, and in the years that followed, I mean, 9-11 is just always going to be a weird thing with me because now, you know, now that I learned more about what happened that day, this, this whole world we live in, is just, it's a crazy place because I don't know. I don't like to look into conspiracy theories. I don't want to say our government had anything to do with it. I, But I know that whatever happened that day was more than just two airplanes hitting buildings. So, I mean, you know, I'm kind of mad that I had this story we were trying to save. We stayed in business three and three-quarter years after September 11th, trying to sell techno. And, I mean, it was funny because the record prices went up from the distributors. Then you had the, you know, the downloading thing was coming. So it all happened all in the same space of five years. By 2005, it was, you know... I really had a lot of friends with record stores. When we closed in 2004, I knew everybody else with a store within a year or two tops were going to be gone. And 3,000 stores closed, you know, record stores after that. So, Well, there was the the sort of the global things that you were talking about, download culture, the demise of vinyl, or at least the demise of... And the of- CDJs were invented in 2001. Two Pioneer first came out with the CDJ in 2001, the ones that were reputable to DJ with. I mean... <laughs> That was another thing. Like CDJ has been around since '86. Techniques made a Techniques 1300. That was a tabletop version of the 1200 turntable. You can look this up online. When you look at this thing, it's just it looks like a 1200. It's top loading, but it wasn't a DJ. It was more like a jukebox CD thing than a DJ machine. So Pioneer comes out with this, you know, the uh, 1000, and now the digital age is coming. From 2000, from the minute the towers fell, this digital age just started. People just got on the internet, but people are like, I had internet in 1994. That's how I found out about your party. We go on, you know, we go on some website and then, then you know, we find out information. But that was that college thing where the screen's green and you're just seeing text. It was like not until MySpace came out in 2005 that like social networking started in 2005. So now with Facebook and Twitter and it, it all fell into place but this is only it's five or ten years that all the people out there are doing this now so the people that were on early on figured out how to you know monopolize and make it you know and it got huge people really just you know look, look at what's going on in the world today a lot of people made a lot of money from this and and yeah, I mean, that's great it's a great thing we were used to promoting with flyers going outside handing flyers out you know mm-hmm. and yeah, I mean, things had also changed so much kind of from the time a little bit before that and definitely, you know, through 9-11 and up through the 2000s. I mean, the city had changed so much as well. Yeah, it's like 30 years went by in a matter of, <laughs> I don't know, 10? Who knows? It seems to me that there's absolutely no way Storm Rave could have happened if it had started in the 2000s. And this is why I didn't want to do this Storm Rave in 2015, but Red Bull really, really... I mean, Red Bull was asking me about this, and I, I was feeling really bad because at first I wasn't even interested. And then, you know, we started like doing stuff with Red Bull Music Academy, and I, I love the guys that they're so like they're so future forward with their thinking. And you know, Red Bull's so, uh, the drink itself. It's amazing because I remember when Red Bull wasn't even in America to drink, and I'm like, this stuff will never work in America because it, it was different, you know. And looking how big they got. Their music academy was great and they kept asking me about doing this storm rate part of their festival. So I thought, you know what, we'll give it a shot. If you guys let me do it the way we did the original. And they all they wanted was a party in 2015 like it was in 92. And we did that. We charged $20. We could have asked for 40 or 50 and it wasn't about that to them or to me. We charged $20. We got, you know, 
a thousand plus people in a dirty warehouse in Brooklyn. And it was like we went in a time capsule back to 92. So it went well. Yeah, it, went, it was like it really was like going back to 92 and starting all over. People like, oh, this Red Bull sponsorship, this is not going to be a storm rave. It's like that thing. If you go online and you look storm rave 2015, and you tell me that wasn't like a storm rave from the pictures you see on Google. It was identical to what we did in 92. It was perfect, actually. So I'd like to throw more parties, but I don't know where to go with it, really, because like you said, it's 2015. It's like it doesn't sit well with what's going on in the world today because it's a different place. But um, for that moment of 2015, it was the most amazing thing ever. I, I could not believe that we pulled that off, actually. Do you sometimes wonder, I mean, the Internet is a huge thing that exists now and that is a huge part of rave culture, dance music culture that wasn't around when you were getting started. Do you ever think to yourself like, man, what if we had that back then? How would that no, have changed I things? No, I don't think it like that because it wouldn't have been the same. It wouldn't have been the same. It was like, you know, I'm kind of like did something Christopher Columbus did. It discovered like a different part of the you know world. Um, it wouldn't be the same because we had to do things to get it. It's like the way I see it was when I first wrote graffiti on the subway, I had to jump off a train platform and run into a dirty dark tunnel with trains running and rats and all types of stuff to write my name on a train. And that somehow got me to go around the world to see DJing and see different parts of the world just from doing that. And um, I can't believe that I was ever would get the opportunity to play in Japan or play in England. And this happened because I was running around in different parts of subway tunnels writing my name. And it just kept, you know, going, going. And then somehow that my name got popular as a graffiti artist. So I'm going to do this with DJing. And that's how I did it, the same application. And it's amazing that I went through the way I did. I wouldn't change it for the world. I could be like a known broke tomorrow. Which is not too far off. No. <laughs> no, no. I mean, actually doing really well right now. I mean, we, I hit a, I'd say I hit my low maybe in like 2007 or 8 was where I hit a low, where I knew that if I didn't go digital, it was going to be over for me. And I started learning how to do digital and, um, you know, 2008. So now I'm good now. So, I mean, but, you know, a lot of learning. It was like I had to go back to the beginning and start over and um, learn just like everybody else does. Life's learning. So, yeah, I mean, doing pretty good right now. But uh, obviously I'm not in the top 100 DJs, but... I never got into this to be a popularity contest. I got into it because I love music. So it's always, if you love it, it's not really, you know. Someone told me, Bones, you just got to keep being you. That's all you need to do at this point. You don't have to do anything else but be you. I'm like, well, that's great because everywhere I go, there I am. So I'm like, 